Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey folks, welcome to the Real Change Anthology. My name is Lily Cushman, and I'm the producer for the Meta Hour podcast. In celebration of the paperback book release of Real Change in November of 2021, we've created an anthology of interviews to explore some themes from the book. These interviews originally aired in 2020 with Sharon speaking to various folks about the intersection of mindfulness, loving-kindness practice, and social action. We're delighted to reissue these conversations to you now as a new collection of weekly episodes organized in the following themes. Agency in action, grief to resilience, activism as art, anger to courage, the interconnected world, and burnout to balance. For the fifth episode of this anthology, we're exploring the theme of the interconnected world. This episode features interview clips from Anu Gupta, Ellen Agler, Sensei Joshin Burns, Malika Dutt, 
Sebenay Selassie, Soren Gordhammer, and Young Pueblo. Each guest speaks about the nuanced ways in which interconnection informs their work and personal healing. Our first clip is from episode 140 of the Meta Hour, featuring Malika Dutt. It originally aired November 3rd of 2020. Malika is a leading innovator in storytelling and culture change, bringing together the power of ancient wisdom and spiritual practices with contemporary technologies and tools for creative transformation. She combines her creative advocacy for a thriving world with coaching, speaking, and strategy practice. In this clip, Malika shares her journey with Sharon of coming to understand interconnectedness as the basis for both personal and collective healing. They also talk about despair as the opposing state to connection and how we can begin to work with despair to move towards a more interconnected reality for ourselves. Take a listen. For me, interconnectedness, which really is a deep, deep understanding of the incredible interwoven fabric of all of us, of us as human beings, of us as one sentient being, one species on this planet, of everything on this planet, the elements, that understanding of interconnectedness also comes with accountability. If you understand interconnectedness, then contemplative practice also needs to be about then how do you step into accountability? And, you know, having inhabited many contemplative practice communities in the last couple of years, as I have begun to study some of these different approaches and also do my own inner work, one of the things that I realized is that it's kind of like I wish my political communities had more contemplative practice orientations and understanding, and I wish my contemplative communities Mm -hmm. had more political understanding and analysis because What I often experience in contemplative communities is this belief that somehow if you do have a mindfulness practice and are compassionate, that that somehow that's enough. And it Mm -hmm. isn't. It's also been the case that in many of the communities that I've been a part of, particularly male founders of those contemplative practices have seriously abused their power. So that makes me wonder about, well, What is the level of self-realization that we're talking about? Where is the place of accountability? I mean, many of the same kinds of abuse of power and privilege that are happening in some other domains are also playing out in contemplative communities. I mean, there's nothing intrinsic about contemplative practice as far as I've come to understand it that stops abuse of power necessarily, which is why... Mm -hmm. The integration of all of this is something that I feel really strongly about. I also feel like this moment, this pandemic moment, is the great unveiling and the great awakening across everything, right? I mean, we're just seeing all of the ways in which whatever it is that we are doing needs to be re-examined, whether we're in the domain of self-inquiry 
and really working on contemplative practices to do deep healing work within ourselves, or whether we're in the realm of political or economic or external social activity, you know, we're really seeing laid bare all of the dilemmas and challenges and uh, dimensions that need for us to take another look, to take another step, to take another way of beingness to emerge into perhaps this, this new world that this little virus is ushering in. You know, listening to you especially talk about kind of abusive behavior, which is certainly true on the part of many leaders in spiritual communities. I thought of this time I went to see a doctor in New York City who I really liked a lot. And and she was just asking me, you know, general questions like, how do you deal with stress? And and I said, well, you know, I'm a meditation teacher. And she said, but do you meditate yourself? And I said, oh, right. <laughs> you know, that's the point. <laughs> you know, it, it's, are you actually doing a practice? Are you living up to what you're espousing? Or has it become like a thing that is just a presentation in the world? So that's what popped into my mind. And it was such a great moment. And what I said to her was, I really like you. You know, that was a great question. Because the role is not the point. It's actually that degree of honesty and sincerity and trying to uncover what your experience actually is. So interconnection and bringing together the force of contemplative practice with the wisdom and the dynamism and and the relevance of political activism through the lens of interconnectedness. So can you talk about your initiative, Interconnected? So I'll start really with myself and share a little bit of my journey um, around sort of some of the pivot points for me and how I came to this framing. So about 10 years ago, my then husband and I separated, we got divorced And uh, we had been together for two decades, for 20 years. And he became involved with our housekeeper, our then housekeeper. They started to have an affair and uh, I didn't know about it because I was busy running around trying to save the world through breakthrough, through the work that I was doing around culture change and changing norms around gender-based violence and immigrant rights and all of those things. And I was so deeply immersed in my work that, you know, I wasn't really uh, paying a lot of attention to what was happening in my own home. When all of this came to light and we ended up separating, it was devastating. It was a moment of deep reckoning for me and I found myself on my knees. I mean, I was hurt in a way that I was actually quite stunned by. I went into a huge amount of guilt, shame. There was a lot of ego stuff involved. You know, there I was, this big human rights advocate out in the world. I had been the opening speaker at the Clinton Global Initiative and spoken at the World Economic Forum and, you know, won the Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship and won these gazillion awards and was feted and this public figure in the field. And what happened to me, I became this story of 
well, men can't be with powerful women and men then usually feel emasculated and then men leave said powerful women for women who are not so powerful. And then, you know, it's like this, there's this stereotype narrative around, well, then men go to the nanny or the housekeeper or the secretary or the whatever. I mean, you know, replace it with Mm. sort of whatever that might be in that place. And so, so I was in this place of navigating this narrative that I found myself in the middle of having such deep shame around all of this. And it would have been very easy for me as a feminist and as a human rights advocate to adopt that narrative and then sort of justify everything that was happening in my life by making him the perpetrator and myself the victim, right? Like I could have just easily gone into that place. Instead, I found myself perhaps in such a deep place of, you know, like prostrate on the ground. I wasn't even just on my knees. I mean, I was horizontal on the ground in just complete sense of brokenness. And in that moment, as I lay on the ground, It became a moment of sort of getting up and then really looking in the mirror, really turning all of that inquiry and all of that place of anger and betrayal and abandonment and all the triggers that this had created in my life and turning it within. And so the first place of disconnection and rupture that I discovered was within myself. And so the first place of connection, of actually even beginning in the tiniest way to understand interconnectedness was to realize how deeply disconnected I was from myself. And so this journey that I embarked on to really reclaim me, all of the different parts of myself that had gotten abandoned separated from along the way, then made me realize that my internal self was as fragmented as the world around me, that the hierarchies that we had created, the power over paradigms, whether it was on the basis of race or sex or gender or ability or class, the economic systems we had created, the education systems we had created, certainly our relationship to the earth, were all deeply, deeply separated. They were all about disconnection. They were all about this rupture where self was, you didn't even have a self and a self. Everything was other, including yourself. So, When I talk about interconnectedness now and the work that I am now doing, one of the pivotal pieces of interconnectedness is first to understand how deeply disassociated really we are from ourselves and from one another and from our planet. And then beginning the work, the contemplative work, the practice work, the love work, the loving kindness work of first beginning to heal some of those ruptures within and without, right? To really find where's the connective tissue, where are the places where we can find those connections amongst ourselves. 
And then because I am so deeply committed to an intersectional analysis, finding those places of connection with self, with community, with systems, and with the earth. And so I am now working with about 100 leaders of social justice organizations around the world, primarily in the global south, to create a leadership program that is exactly this, that is about how do we build interconnected leadership where our analysis of the rupture of the hierarchies we've been doing in the context of patriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, you know, all of the isms for so many decades. How do we hold that analysis while also starting to create the new paradigm, the new place of emergence from where we understand the deep webbing that ties us and all life together? That's the approach. That's the work. That's what I've stepped into now, Sharon. That's fantastic. I mean, I think that actually really is the healing because also listening to you, I'm thinking about this book I wrote, Faith, which came out 18 years ago. And in the process of writing it, I was working with this freelance editor and I was saying one day that the opposite of faith isn't doubt, that doubt can be a a tremendous aid to faith when you question, when you wonder, when you seek to know the truth for yourself, that actually is a really powerful aid to faith. And by faith, I don't mean dogmatic adherence. I mean, having a sense of being able to offer your heart to something and honoring that gift, knowing that you have a heart and that's a tremendous gift as you align yourself with some vision. And so my friend who was working with me, she said, if doubt is not the enemy of faith, what's the opposite or the enemy of faith? And I said, despair. And part of faith in the way I was using the word was very much about connection, connecting to inner resources and strengths within ourselves and connecting to this sense of belonging on this planet with one another to a bigger picture of life. And so the opposite of despair is really connection. And we certainly are in a time with plenty of despair to go around. That's such a beautiful example, Sharon. Um, You know, the opposite of faith is despair. And we've certainly created worlds where there is so much despair, where there is such pain, where there is so much trauma, you know, where we've been responsible even as a human species for creating so much pain with the other beings that we share this planet with and with the planet itself. And that despair was certainly... uh, deeply embedded in me, one of the most healing pieces of my interconnectedness journey has been to actually build relationship with parts of my inner child, parts of my inner child that felt such deep despair about the pain that she experienced that she died. And that part of me became so deeply disassociated that I have pretty much had amnesia about most of my childhood and it's sort of crept into a lot of my adult life. And so tapping into that despair and developing a relationship with this part of myself has been actually some of my deepest practice 
a lot of my contemplative practice training has brought me to actually spending a half an hour every day with this part of myself, with loving attention, with kindness, with presence, and allowing this part of me to speak and enact and articulate the rage and the pain and the grief and just the, the sheer despair. Our next clip is from episode 129 of the Meta Hour, featuring Sebene Selassie. It originally aired August 17th of 2020. Sebene has been teaching meditation for over a decade, and her first book, You Belong, was released in August of 2020. She has studied Buddhism for over 30 years and received a BA from McGill University in Religious and Women's Studies and an MA from the New School, where she focused on cultural studies and race. In this clip, Sebene talks about how our sense of self is affected by not feeling part of the larger whole, and how that disconnect can lead to harmful and distorted views of reality. Here's the clip. I've read your book, of course, because I think I wrote a blurb for it. You and, uh, Thank you. I, and uh, I can't remember if you use the image of the Statue of Liberty or not, which I use because she's one of my icons. And I realize that what she is conveying is that sense of belonging. Like you belong to, even you, you know. Oh, I love that. I didn't use that image. I should have. Oh, um, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> and I love, you know, the strength and the certainty of Lady Liberty lighting that torch of belonging because that certainty is so important. I loved what you said about it being shaky, our sense of belonging. Yeah. And it's so true. I used this quote by Desmond Tutu and he says, we are because we belong. It is the fact, a fundamental nature of reality that we are interconnected. We're not separate. We belong to all of nature. But again, our families, our culture, history, society, inequities, divisions, they all threaten that sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. And how old were you when you came to the States? I was three when we uh, immigrated from Ethiopia. And in a lot of ways, I had the easiest time of many of my family, so of my siblings and also cousins, because I was the youngest. My brother was eight years older than me. And so I had a chance to really absorb American culture in a different way. And still, I felt like I didn't belong because I was moving through different languages and cultural realities not to mention we were a black family living in a white neighborhood and going to mostly white schools. I really felt very strongly that sense of not belonging on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis. Yeah. And it's really wonderful. I mean, in a way that that no doubt painful experiences has been a source of you helping others and kind of giving voice to that experience in a way that is creative and, and has the opportunity for people to really examine it and come to a place of, of greater settling themselves. Yeah, I use this image in my book of margin and center because we often talk about the margins as if that's a deficit, like we say marginalized communities. And it's true, there are lacks usually of resources and 
money and access in the margins, but they also gives you a lot of perspective. So -hmm. there's something I find that's been really enriching about being on the margins and being able to see the sense that we're all this one larger circle and know that ultimately we do belong to each other. And I see that in the young activists now, I have to say, there's so much power in, for example, the prison abolition movement or movements that are questioning whether we can use the same systems Mm -hmm. that are so harmful to rectify the problems. If we kind of use these punitive damaging systems, then we're not really believing that we belong to each other. Interesting, because uh, some things that beset us are really like the assumptions that we make. And if you're kind of in the center or you feel like you're in the center, I think no one is ever actually in the center, but sometimes we do feel that way. Mm. Uh, I tell this story in my book. At this time, I was riding in a car with a friend and we were stuck in this terrible, horrible, hideous traffic and complaining bitterly about it (laughs) the whole while. And then my friend turned to me and said, we're the traffic too, you know. And I thought, oh, what an interesting experience. It's like the center just dropped out with me in it, you know. (laughs) What's that feeling like? It's my road. I own it. You are an interloper. You don't belong. You're taking up space, you know. And we're the traffic too. Right. We're all in this together. And so, but there is a very different perspective from, as you say, the so-called margins where you're not making the same assumptions. And maybe that's a reason we all desperately need to be in conversation with each other is so we can challenge those assumptions. Yeah, and really see that what harms one harms us all so mm-hmm. that we we actually need new models, new perspectives, new systems so that we all see we're the traffic and we're also the solution to the traffic. Mm-hmm. So here's another quote from your book. Our culture is steeped in oppressive forces, and those forces are powerful. Once we begin to see this, we slowly stop blaming ourselves for the way we continually buy into separation and domination and for feelings of internalized oppression that we know are there but can't seem to drop. We have to keep reminding ourselves, these are the culture's thoughts, and the culture is really shitty. I adopted these patterns of comparison and competition, of hierarchy and oppression. They are not mine. I absorbed separation and domination the same way I absorbed language. Only then can we look even more closely at these patterns and how they are playing out today, often unconsciously. Yeah, I'm referring there to this quote. um, I think it's a paraphrase of Krishnamurti's. Uh, you think you're thinking your thoughts, you're not, you're thinking the culture's thoughts. So I think one of the things about looking at these patterns of hierarchy, oppression, this delusion of separation that can lead us into dominating tendencies, and I see that all the time in myself in different ways, that we think that it is us, this unskillful behavior, but really we're just playing out the patterns of our culture. Mm-hmm. We've been taught that from you know, the time we enter school and start competing for grades and sports and start getting compared to our siblings and each other. And 
of course, it's going to play out everywhere from a yoga class to work to politics to our activism. Our next clip is from episode 128 of the Meta Hour, featuring Sensei Joshin Burns. It originally aired April 11 of 2020. Joshin is a Zen priest, teacher, activist, and the founder of the Bread Loaf Mountain Zen Community in Vermont. Joshin maintains a core practice of bearing witness to homelessness and has spent much of his career working for social change nonprofits in the area of AIDS and HIV prevention, child welfare, and community-based philanthropy. In this clip, Joshin shares how the practice of Zen has helped him to rest into the direct experience of the oneness of life. Here's the clip. You know, I feel like as a society, we're confused. We're so conditioned to warfare. We really are. That even when we take on virtuous activity, right? This is the long history of religious war, for example, right? In in humanity, but it still happens in our time. We, you know, we get clear about a set of values. We want to take a stand. And then we think we have to bludgeon everybody in order to get them to do it our way. You know, it's like this confusion we have about this. And this is where I think the contemplative practice is, you know, in my opinion, just really helpful. You know, I'm a Zen guy. So for us, Zazen mm-hmm. is a kind of all-inclusive openness. And to take the time to remember that that's really what's here, what's really here is belonging, what's really here is connection, what's really here is that we're all finding our way through space and time, breath by breath, and that I'm connected to you, whether you're a person doing things that I agree with and like and think are helpful, or whether you're a person doing things that I don't like, like there's no denying that we belong together and that we're here together and that we're creating something together, you know, co-creating it, whether we want to admit it or not, that's kind of what's going on. And I think the silence of Zazen allows me to not only remember that intellectually, but also rest in it somehow. Our next clip is from episode 132 of the Meta Hour, featuring Diego Perez, widely known by his pen name, Young Pueblo. It originally aired September 7th of 2020. Diego is a meditator, writer, and speaker. His practice of Vipassana meditation, as taught by S.N. Goenka, has given him a deeper understanding of liberation and inspires him to reach hundreds of thousands of people online every month through his writing. He's the author of several books, including Clarity and Connection, which was just released in April of 2021. In this clip, Diego reflects on the quality of interconnectedness he experienced while living in New York City at the beginning of the pandemic, and the different perspective that gives him on community and basic human rights. Here's the clip. 
something I wrote about in Real Change was also a, it's not really a struggle, but a challenge that I've faced, you know, myself in trying to understand life and, and the effects of meditation and the benefits of meditation was, was seeing that I really do believe that meditation practice of, of several kinds, you know, it doesn't have to be specifically loving kindness practice, you know, Mm -hmm. that it will transform someone's heart and that, uh, so many people have said that to me, you know, like I gave this person on the street a dollar and I looked at them for the very first time and realized that was a human being or, I listened or in times like this in a world where kind of the painful and almost tragic side of interconnection is also apparent, you know, we uh, realize that what happens over there, wherever over there is, doesn't stop over there. You know, it comes over oh, here. What yeah. we do it really matters. And, you know, they're just ways in which I think people are having through their practice or through life experience having a whole other understanding, but people don't necessarily have the kind of almost analytical training to think, well, what is the systemic root of this? You know, like, why is this guy on the street asking for money? You know, like, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. I think one of the things that humans struggle with is complexity, right? I think it's, it's hard to really like in your mind encapsulate all of the different factors and all of the different movements and like multiplicity of cause and effect that's happening mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. throughout the world. So, so I was in New York City during the pandemic. I was there from, um, you know, I, I lived there um, up until a little while ago. And, but specifically from, from March to, I think about June, you know, we didn't leave New York City at all, essentially. And uh, my wife and I, we got to really experience the slow sort of intensity of the pandemic in New York City where, you know, 23,000 people ended up dying, I would say, in like a two to three month period. And that's so many times more than what, you know, the people that passed away in 9-11. So for a city, that hit was so centralized, but it made so many things clear. You know, one one of the biggest topics was the healthcare inequality that was happening in the city where so many black and brown people were getting worse health care and worse treatment in hospitals and, and were dying at bigger numbers, like in community hospitals, and made the interconnectedness so clear in a way where you knew, like, if the people in your community are not healthy, then your chances of being unhealthy also rise. So yeah. why is it so difficult for everyone in the city to have at least and some sort of equal access to great health care. Because if they're healthy, then we're going to be healthy as well, especially in regards to a virus and a pandemic. If people are better taken care of, then everyone's likelihood of surviving through this is going to increase. And everything felt so interconnected in that moment that um, I hope it becomes a lasting experience because that's one of the things that we need to include in our idea of human rights. Our next clip is from episode 141 of the Meta Hour, featuring Ellen Agler. It originally aired November 16 of 2020. Ellen serves as the CEO of the End Fund, a private philanthropic initiative working to see an end to the suffering caused by five neglected tropical diseases, 
that affect 1.7 billion of the world's most impoverished people. Her book, Under the Big Tree, was released in January of 2019. In this clip, Sharon and Ellen talk about the relationship between systems-level change and individual-level change, how each inform each other, and how to ensure that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Ellen reflects on the challenges that result from losing perspective for larger systems, and vice versa. Here's the clip. You know, when I was writing this book, I I did this strange pivot, I feel. It was like a strange loop. I was talking about kind of individual change and how that could affect our work in the world. And then I moved into some vision of systems change and having that, not just individual application of good-heartedness as something we could explore. And then I, I looped right around back to... Uh, individual change in the sense of, I think the last story in the book is about a, a friend and his father, you know, and so that range also fascinates me, the one-on-one -on -one sense of making a difference in someone's life and then looking at large-scale systems like public health systems. And I think of you as kind of at the epicenter of balancing both. Mm. It's such an interesting observation because I think in order to make large-scale change, you have to think beyond what you can do as an individual, what your particular organization can do, but like how do all these organizations, how does, how does the, what is the government's part? What is the private sector's part? What are the different NGOs and actors in civil society doing? What is the individual level? And like, what are the levers of change and the levers of action where you could either you know, inject some more funding or some more technical support and help all of the pieces just be more. I mean, I, I spent a, a, a call earlier today was just of the head of neglected tropical diseases for the Gates Foundation, for the U.S. government, for the U.K. government, and for the World Health Organization, and, and then me with the N Fund. And collectively, we're like the largest funders in this space. And it's, we speak on a regular basis to just say like, well, let's make sure that we're not overlapping is what we're doing synergistic. We, we all have really big, complicated portfolios of work, but how can we make sure that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts? Um, so that sort of systems level work, I think is, is so interesting. And it's the, um, I mean, our dear mutual friend, Jeff Walker talks so much about this as like the, this term system entrepreneur, that actually there's a way of, of working in the in-between spaces between organizations that's so important for large scale change. But then for me, if, if I can't keep in my mind, the one person also that whose life will be changed, it can get really abstract and sort of demotivating and like, who are we really helping at the end of the day when it's all this, you know, like coordination activities and system mapping activities until I think of, you know, the one woman who I saw have trachoma surgery, Nieba, whose eyelashes were turning inwards and scratching her cornea to the point that she was about to become permanently blind. And with this very simple 20 minute surgery was that was able to be reversed and like just holding her or, you know, sometimes I have that in my mind, like when I'm thinking about program design on a very macro level, I think, what would Nieba think about this? Like that one person that I know in the community who really cares about, about this work. So I do think, how do you hold both to be true? Because you can get overly theoretical and, and you can also 
sometimes just not have as much impact if you're only thinking sort of one person at a time. Mm-hmm. I would think that also if you're only thinking in terms of systems, it can get immensely frustrating, <laughs> yes, right? Definitely. Because the, the gratification can come with that one person or that sense of like, okay, something was accomplished and trying to change a system is often slow going and yet also extremely important because mm. it's it's reaching into causes and conditions mm. for, for suffering to happen. Mm-hmm. How do you think of systems on the level of of your work in terms of mindfulness? Is it systems of all of the different teachers? Is it systems of actually different practices of a system of using loving kindness versus more breath work and attention? I mean, what would be the way of defining systems work in the mindfulness that is space? so interesting. Um, I more think of it as a kind of education and looking for causes mm-hmm. and conditions. Mm. I haven't really thought about the system of who we are because, of course, that's true. And, and a lot of that is not necessarily intentional, but it becomes synergistic. So, for example, when I came back from India in 1974, as a teacher, I mean, nobody knew the word mindfulness at all, but, mm-hmm. you know, meditation was often seen as something kind of exotic and mm-hmm. a little strange and woo-woo. And, mm-hmm. and somewhere along the way, scientists and researchers and neuroscientists became interested in how meditation can function on the brain. And and all of a sudden, there was kind of a collaboration between meditation teachers and the scientists who were studying it. And, and the sum of those efforts has been enormous, far greater than what either of us could probably do on our own. And, and the same, in a way, with artists. Like I can remember I was teaching in New York City with a friend whose wife is a, a graphic artist, and he said to me, you know that you can tell when these methods and, and this perspective has really taken root in this country when the artists get involved. Hmm. And after that, I went to Madison, Wisconsin, and I had lunch with Richie Davidson, who's one of the main neuroscientists researching meditation, and you know I've known him for a long time. And, and he said to me, you know, you can really tell when these methods and this perspective is taken root in this country when the scientists get involved. Honey, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just heard it was the artists, you know. And, but there's mm. something about, you know, the artists have so many courageous means of expression mm-hmm. and bring these ideas into such an inspiring form. And, and the scientists, in many ways, for many people, are the validators of saying, oh, this isn't just some esoteric weird thing. This is actually changing my brain. This is changing genetic expression. Look at that. Hmm. So I, I see, if I think of a system, it's way beyond just the teachers, the meditation teachers, but all these different spheres of people who have undertaken it and are bringing it to life in their own way. I love that. This next clip is from episode 133 of the Meta Hour, featuring Anu Gupta. It originally aired September 14th of 2020. Anu is a scientist, educator, lawyer, and founder of Be More with Anu. He's logged over 10,000 hours of meditation and developed Be More with Anu's science-backed, compassion-based approach after conducting decade-long research 
on the causes of and solutions to racial and gender inequality. In this clip, Sharon and Anu speak about the legacy of John Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr., and Mahatma Gandhi in the movement of nonviolent resistance, and how the truth of interdependence can act as a source of agency to love our enemies. Here's the clip. I can remember when I co-wrote this book with Bob Thurman called Love Your Enemies, mm -hmm. and that wasn't always the title of the book, but it ended up being the publisher's choice for the title. And people would often object, you know, like, why should I love my boss? They're an idiot, you know, or why right. should I love this person? They're oppressive or they're abusive. And Bob would say, well, of course you want to love them. That means you want them to be happy because if they were only happy, they'd be so much less of a jerk. Exactly. Today I was watching the memorial for John Lewis. Mm -hmm. And Basically, that is what he stood for the entirety of his career, the entirety of his existence. He was able to have love for every single one of those officers that were beating him down, for all of the politicians that opposed everything he stood for on equality and justice. Mm -hmm. But that didn't mean he agreed with them. That didn't mean he didn't oppose them or speak out loud against them. Of course he did. He was an activist and a protester, yet he could still see their humanity. He could see the, what do we call them, the three poisons, you know, that were clouding mm -hmm. over the, the true self that they are, beneath the greed, the hatred, the ignorance. And I think that's what our practices are really calling us to do and be at this time. I was watching a little bit of it too, and Somebody was speaking and they were describing what was, maybe it was Barack Obama, they were describing what was in John Lewis's backpack when he went off to march across that bridge. Oh, yeah, toothbrush and, uh, yeah, little things. An orange and apple. Orange and apple, yeah. A book about the racial history of the United States and a book by Thomas Merton. Mm. And I thought, I never knew that, that he was carrying around a book by Thomas Merton. Of course. And it's so beautiful, right? Because this is kind of how we're all connected, the nature of interdependence. Because for him, you know, nonviolent resistance to oppression was a way of being. Mm -hmm. And he adopted that way of being, being a young person from the American South, you know, from Georgia, who's studying in Tennessee. Yet these ideas were adopted by our civil rights leaders after being inspired by the idea of Satyagraha in India, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a lot of where a lot of the Buddhist practices come from. And then those same people that were being, that were adopting Satyagraha in India were being influenced by the Theosophical Society of America. Mm -hmm. We're using those similar ideas. So it's just, you know, the, it's just so beautiful around the nature of interdependence because no one really has ownership over the human heart, you know? Mm -hmm. And it just passes from one person to another, but it's really about us feeling empowered enough to follow that calling, that calling of remaining in our heart, remaining on the side of love. And, you know, love as a word, and I'm actually curious what you think about this because it gets a really bad rap. 
Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's like an anemic thing. It's like very soft, like you're a doormat. But I feel like to be able to love your enemies, to be able to humanize them, it's probably the most courageous thing and the, the boldest thing one can do. Oh, well, I certainly agree. And I think it's a power. It's a superpower because I think it's aligned with how things actually are interdependent, interconnected. We can't kind of just like vanquish people and imagine their lives have nothing to do with ours because it's not true. And it'd be easier if it was, maybe, as long as we won. But, you know, it's just not true. And the closer we get to the truth, it's just that's what empowers love is that it's true. It's like listening to the people in that church, listening to the example of John Lewis's life. And would we be all watching his funeral if he was full of hatred or I remember when um, I had the opportunity some years ago to I spent the day with Miles Horton, who was the founder of the Highlander, then known as the Highlander Folk School, which was an integrated school. A lot of civil rights workers went there uh, for training, environmental rights workers. A little later on, it was in Tennessee, and it was integrated, so that was like a big scandal and, and a big problem. And somehow I, I ended up spending a day with Miles Horton, and you know, we talked about a variety of things. I talked about meditation, which he wasn't that interested in, frankly. You know, <laughs> I asked him, like, what do you do when you need a break, when you need to get some perspective? He said, I look at the mountains. But then we started talking about loving kindness meditation. And he said, oh, Marty, meeting Martin Luther King Jr. Marty used to say to me, you got to love everybody. And I used to laugh and say, no, I don't. I just have to love the people who deserve to be loved. And Marty would laugh and laugh and say, nope, got to love everybody. And the few times I've actually told that story is often a response of, yeah, well, look what happened. As though there were cause and effect, like he loved everybody, therefore he got assassinated. And that if he'd been hateful and bitter and vengeful, he would have been safe. And it's such a funny equation in our minds that the love is going to bring us down. But you think about legacy, which I, you know, I'm older now, so one can think about that. And what are we remembered for? Look at the legacy, like the kind of lineage you just talked about, which was really like Gandhi to Dr. Howard Thurman to Martin Luther King Jr., you know, and to us, to whomever is is feeling aligned with that mantle. So, yeah, and it's it's really. I mean, I think this reminds me of two stories. You know, the first one. You know, I was working predominantly internationally and I wanted to work internationally and I never thought I would become an expert on racial equity and breaking racial bias of all things. I'm very much a nerd who likes to sit in a corner and like just read and study and play, but it was a necessity. And I remember that this was 2009. I was working in New Orleans for summer as a, as a summer associate um, in law school. And I was basically sitting in a sentencing hearing where this was, I guess, four or four or five years after Hurricane Katrina. So already there have been so many egregious crimes or, that have been committed against communities living there. But I saw this judge sentence, you know, teenagers, I would say, between the ages of 13 and 16 um, to two, three, four years at a time for incredibly petty offenses things like breaking cell phones and trespass to property. And of course, all of these teenagers were black and impoverished. And for me, of course, as egregious as it was, and actually 
I was sighing so hard that the officer of the peace of the court had to come and ask me to leave. Mm. I was disrupting the peace of the court. And I think I felt a sense of moral disgust in my belly. And the disgust wasn't just about how egregious this was happening and how these young people's lives were just disposable, but I couldn't understand the cruelty. I had never seen that type of cruelty that this judge and this prosecutor and all these operatives in the court were so conditioned to having. I was like, where is the love? Where is the compassion? Where is the mercy? You know, Brian Stevenson talks about mercy, mm -hmm. this idea. And that's where I really kind of started this quest. And for me, this quest really kind of came to a head, actually with you, Sharon, because I went on a retreat with you. It was a, I think it was a seven-day meta retreat, loving-kindness retreat. And then it was, it was like a tap-on of like three days of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try this out. <laughs> so like, I was like, okay, I'm going to do all of that. And I think um, we had started some forgiveness practices in during the loving kindness retreat portion of it too already and i remember that you know we were trying you know we went forgiveness from forgiving the self to you know loved ones and kind of expanding the circle to then moving towards people that have really harmed us mm -hmm. um, and then also thinking about how we may have harmed them so for me, as someone who was really thinking about the harm of racial trauma and racial bias that was perpetrated against me and other communities that I care about, I started seeing those same seeds of hatred in myself. Mm. So I remembered every time in my life I had used a racial expletive to intentionally cause harm to another being, and particularly using the word white, you know, white person, you know, or something like that. And it wasn't that many times, but I remembered that I'd done it to exactly three people. And once I was able to forgive myself for having that, I was free. I actually wrote them an email. Mm. It took me several months to do that, to have garnered the courage to do that. And I apologized. And for me, that wasn't, I didn't expect a response. It was not about that. It was like, I was freeing myself from those seeds of hatred that were deeply planted in my heart, which were actually a product of self-hatred. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, like, that's where the healing really began. And I, and I really believe that that's not something that only, I'm, I'm not a special person. Um, I think this is all of our, you know, birthrights. And this is what Dr. King was talking about when he's talking about radical love, when he's talking about loving everybody, because he's a, he was able to see that beyond the pain that they cause others, there's pain beneath that pain, you know? Mm -hmm. I think we do learn that from looking at ourselves. You know, I certainly have. And, and sometimes, you know, we look at somebody who's causing harm and they don't seem to be suffering a lot. They seem to be just fine yeah. and pretty self-satisfied. But it really takes some reflection, I think, to understand that actually can't be. They may be very disconnected from their pain, but it's there. Our next clip is from episode 136 of The Matt Tower. 
featuring Soren Gordhammer. It originally aired October 5th of 2020. Soren is the founder and host of Wisdom 2.0 and the author of the book by the same name. He's spoken on and taught mindfulness to people around the world, from youth in New York City's juvenile halls, to trauma workers in Rwanda, to the staff at Google's corporate headquarters. In this clip, Soren talks with Sharon about the way he feels interconnection can fuel engagement in social action, and in particular, around climate change. Here's the clip. Do you find like within the meditation community that as you talk about electoral politics, as you talk about participation and engagement, that people don't like that to some degree? (laughs) Well, I would say two things. I'd say I do feel like there's some core things like voting that I really expect people to do. At the Mm -hmm. same time, I also realize that the political domain isn't everyone's gig, right? Like they want to talk about history or they want to talk about television or they like, I also realize that it's not everybody's thing, right? Everybody just has different things that they're passionate about. So I don't want to assume that everybody should kind of be interested in the things I'm interested in. At the same time, and I think it's changing. I think there, there at least used to be, I think more of a sense that if you were concerned and involved in the political sphere, what's going on in society, that you were attached and that that was mm-hmm. just going to lead to suffering and that you should practice more equanimity and not be so engaged in results of actions. And I'm with that. I actually believe that the best actions come from equanimity, but they also come from taking a stand when it's time to take a stand. And I feel like the challenge that we have today is how do we be engaged with a loving heart and how do we be involved with a loving heart and how do we fight for what's right with a loving heart? And of course, it's out of our control. And of course, life is always uncertain and mm-hmm. it's important to it's important to speak our voice. And so that's my sense. And I do feel like there was a tendency in the meditation world to be more judgmental, but more more of the people I know are are realizing like, oh, there's this world that we create together and I want to be more active force in how that world looks and that there's people that depend on me, particularly people who I might never see, but who are really dependent on certain policies and, and climate change. We're all interconnected. And if America doesn't lead the world in climate change, things could look really bad and Maybe that's what needs to happen, right? Who knows? Maybe that's the process, but at least it's important for us to share our voice and to do our best to present what we think is a livable approach and livable world. That's beautiful. And I think that when you said that about climate change, I just thought about early on in the pandemic, I was talking to somebody and you know, I came up here to Barry with my snow boots on right. March. <laughs> you mentioned that. <laughs> two weeks and I'm still here. And uh, I was sort of looking for some perspective, some brightness or something when I was talking to this person. And and they said, well, you know, this is barely like scratching the surface of what it's going to be like when climate change really hits. And yeah. I said, thank you. But it's true. And if we can work together as a world to address covid maybe that will give us some strength to work together as a world to address climate change. Because I do think it's already impacting different ecosystems and it's going to be a big one. And I don't know if necessarily the earth will survive, right? There's no, there's no kind of question that the earth won't survive, but the question is, will humans 
And um, I do think there's a lot about interconnectedness and about that our actions matter that climate change expresses. And I hope we can be able to kind of look clearly. Like, you know, one of the things I love about meditation is just like, can you see clearly what is, (laughs) right? Without a story on top of it. And I've learned so much from you, Sharon, and other teachers about like, can we just see clearly what is? Let's not try and change it first. Let's not try and figure it out, but just let's see clearly what is. And then let's tune into what action, if any, we Mm -hmm. are inspired to take to to alleviate suffering when we can alleviate suffering to the best of our ability. And I think climate change is just such an amazing test for all of us to be able to see clearly what's happening. And then in each one of us, to, if there is anything, to follow that inspiration to address that in whatever way we can. For our final clip, we once again hear from Malika Dutt, who started off the episode. In this clip, Malika shares her hopes for contemplative practitioners to fuel a more interconnected paradigm, and in doing so, transform the broader power structures of our world. Here's the clip. You know, you just made me think. I actually have the smile on my face. I was just thinking, imagine if the millions and millions of people that have been and are a part of contemplative communities around the world, right? I mean, just in this moment of the uprising of, the pandemic great awakening or what you know however we want to call it the uprising with the movement for black lives and that coinciding with all of the ways in which this little virus has just brought the world to its knees mm-hmm. wouldn't it just be so incredible if the worlds of contemplative practice brought all of that incredible energy to really fueling and feeding the emergence of an interconnected paradigm, an interconnected paradigm where we stepped in with courage to do the self-reflection around the ways in which we may have continued to benefit from or abuse power and privilege, to really step into the healing that we need to do within and across communities and create rituals, um, you know, of atonement, of healing, of reconciliation and transformation, of really sort of taking all of the juiciness that exists in, in these worlds and infusing this emergence that we are in, um, you know, to usher in this, this, this world that we all kind of see and dream about, you know, this dreaming of this new world into being, I, I, I can feel it. I mean, I can feel all of these shifts that are happening. And even this conversation with you, Sharon, like just in this moment, I just felt such a surge of these intersecting energies to come together to really infuse interconnectedness as the reality of all things, you know, it's not like I made up interconnectedness. That is the truth of us, of this world, of this planet, of of the oneness. Um, 
And, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if we could move from the rupture paradigm, the hierarchy paradigm into really remembering, moving past the dismemberment, remembering the interconnectedness of us and all things. May it be so. That's beautiful. Thanks so much for listening. The paperback edition of Real Change is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more at SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And may you live with ease.